I was somewhat glib, you could say, right? All I knew 100% is that I was obsessed with this idea. And if I didn't do it, this was the one thing in my life that I felt like if I didn't do, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And I think going back, if I had known the odds and just how hard it is to raise money and hire and find that product market fit and find those initial customers, I probably wouldn't have done it. In hindsight, I think I had the benefit of being somewhat of a noob and that helped me. That's Elliot Katz, co-founder and chief business officer of Phantom Auto. Phantom Auto's goal is to solve the labor shortage in logistics by enabling people to drive vehicles remotely from thousands of miles away. In this episode, we talk about the benefits of being a newbie, the realities of a sink or swim environment, and learning from rejection. I'm Maureen Taylor, and this is Think Like a Founder. You are a founder but you started as a lawyer. Tell us about that. I started my career at one of the largest law firms in the world. The good news is that I had a lot of financial security. The bad news is that the work that you do sometimes as a very junior attorney is not necessarily the most fulfilling. And luckily for me, I found subject matter that I was very interested in which is connected in autonomous vehicles. And I basically went to my firm and said, hey, this is where I want to focus all of my time. And they said, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because these vehicles don't exist yet. This was 2013, 2014, when things were really still getting off the ground. And luckily for me, the space as a whole decided to come into itself. And so I got to start doing pretty much all of my legal work, regulatory work in that space. Through there, I became very sought after, I guess you could say. I really got to learn a ton about the state of the technology at that time. And what I found very quickly is that I really believed in the technology. I think our status quo is not optimal by any stretch. But I also knew by actually riding in these vehicles that the technology was very far from prime time. I actually got to feel the difference between the marketing at the time where my grandmother thought she could fall asleep in the Bay Area and wake up in New York and never have to touch the steering wheel in 2015, how far off that truly was. And that led me to this idea that you really need, it might sound counterintuitive, but you really need a human in the loop to help the vehicle when it runs into these issues. It runs into these issues, what we call edge cases, very, very frequently. Most people thought it was somewhat wacky because the whole idea was these cars are supposed to be driving themselves. We're supposed to get the human out of the loop. And through my work in the space, I was introduced to my now co-founder, who is an engineer, highly technical. And he, at the time, was building the technology that I had really been dreaming about just in his garage. And were you surprised at your attraction to being obsessed about a topic? Or did you always know that something like that was going to happen? Never in a million years did I think that I would be an entrepreneur or a founder of my own company. 
It's just that I became obsessed with this idea of how powerful these vehicles could be as a cause for good and how through my experience, I realized that a thousand flowers were not going to bloom unless somehow a human could stay in the loop to help these vehicles. So it was born out of, I guess you could say this obsession. What I would say at the time, this was 2017. I was a partner at a very large law firm. I was the head of the autonomous vehicle practice group. And I had a one-year-old son at the time. So it would have been probably much easier if I had just rode that out. But every night before I went to bed, all I was thinking about was how we have to get this technology to the market. That's really what this was born out of. So this was probably 15 years ago. And the editor of Wired Magazine, one of the smartest people I've ever met, came and did a talk for our, our employees. And he's talking about how people react to technology and like AI, everyone's so freaked out about it. How's it going? Right. But the driverless cars is something he used as an example. He said, you watch because we're not supposed to be driving. I mean, if you think about it, do you know how many people die in car accidents? And to think that we could do something that would assist the driver to be safer is something that we should invest in, although people are going to be afraid. So you were past that and you knew that this was going to do something, even though it's also dangerous. Is that right? I think the editor from Wired is correct. 40,000 plus people die just in the U.S. per year. It's more than a million around the world. And that should not be our status quo. However, I believe that this is such a change. For as long as we've had vehicles, all we've known is that humans are supposed to drive them. We're completely changing that and the machine is going to drive itself. That there's going to be a much higher bar for these vehicles. And I think that what we want to do as we roll out these cars is make sure that humans still are involved in their operation because they're not going to be able to do everything from day one. And the companies that are rolling out this technology, they do have operation centers where human remote operators can at least provide guidance to the vehicles. I think that they should go a step further in enable them to be able to remotely drive those vehicles just very short distances at very slow speeds so they're not clogging up the middle of the road when they break down. That's the most dangerous scenario is having a disabled vehicle just sitting in onflow of traffic in San Francisco. So I think that that's going to be and should be the next step. There's a driverless car, but there is still a human that can help in the event that we have one of these edge cases or emergencies. How do you get your kids to school? We actually live very, very close by, so we walk. Would you put your kids into a driverless car to send them to school? I would not right now. It's for the very reason that I said before. I don't believe that it's safe to have these vehicles for really any period of time just blocking traffic, especially if there's a human inside. I don't think they're there yet and ready for prime time. I actually don't believe that the technology itself will, for many decades, be able to do everything itself. I believe that you have to have a human in the loop because even if the vehicle only breaks down once a month or even once every six months, you need that, for safety reasons, that person to be able to control the vehicle. The other thing that I'll say that 
conversation that I often have is the bar for safety for human-driven vehicles is so high. Let's say that every day on your way to work, there's one place where you have to make an unprotected left turn. Your expectation is that you're going to make that unprotected left turn successfully 100% of the time. And if you're an autonomous vehicle and you make that turn successfully 999 times, but on the 1,000th time, something goes wrong and you get T-boned, that's the worst automotive-grade product in the history of automotive-grade products, and it's not even close. So the bar is extremely high. As much of a problem as I have with our current status quo and the mistakes that humans make, humans are actually very, very good drivers because we drive an unbelievable amount of miles each year. And so, yes, there's going to be accidents, there's going to be fatalities, but the bar is so high for this autonomous technology to meet. So you had this thing that you became obsessed with. You got to, from a legal perspective, do it at the law firm. And then you met your co-founder. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my standpoint, which was somewhat of a contrarian view within the space, was somewhat known. I worked with a lot of VCs. Oftentimes, they would have me kind of meet with companies they were interested in investing and kind of give them a lowdown of what I thought about the solution, the technology, and how it fits into the space. And so they introduced me to my now co-founder, and I was just absolutely blown away by the fact that this idea that I had been thinking about, having a human in the loop to help these vehicles, but had no way to build, this person was just doing, unbeknownst to me, in their garage. It already had it working to the point that in his living room, we could drive a car that was out on the streets. And the biggest problem for me at that point, again, I'm not that 12-year-old that dreamt about being an entrepreneur or starting my own company. And I had a life set up. And I had a wife who was caring for our one-year-old. She wasn't working at the time. So for about three months, I every night, this is all I would think about. And I finally got the courage up to go to my wife and say, hey, listen, I'm thinking about you know, leaving this and starting a company with this guy that I met. And she cried for a few days straight. And then she came to me and said, listen, you know, you've never steered us wrong. Because I had a somewhat similar conversation with her about five years earlier when I said to her, listen, I really don't like these big intellectual property cases or security cases. So I'm going to switch my entire practice to autonomous vehicles. And at the time, she thought I was crazy too. So she said, I bet on you then, I'll bet on you now. And we got it going. We took a huge, I personally took a huge, huge risk, the biggest risk I've ever taken in my entire life. Fast forward almost six years later, we have a thriving company. We have 120 people with us. We've raised about $100 million. We have a product that some of the biggest logistics companies in the world are using. So I would do it again 100 times out of 100. You must have blown your own mind a little bit. I think that one thing I had to my advantage, maybe of not being a a lifelong entrepreneur and not necessarily at that time knowing the rules of engagement and how hard this is in the likelihood of success, I was somewhat glib, you could say. All I knew is that I was obsessed with this idea. This was the one thing in my life that I felt like if I didn't do, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And I think going back, if I had known the odds and just how hard it is 
to raise money and hire and find that product market fit and find those initial customers, I probably wouldn't have done it. In hindsight, I think I had the benefit of being somewhat of a noob and that helped me. I heard that you said that being with a co-founder is like being married. It is really interesting, the relationship of having to have the same values, trusting the person, being able to divvy up the work. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into that relationship that is uh, very similar to family. I didn't understand how intense this would be, how intense that relationship would be. So I guess you could argue that it was pure luck, but I have an amazing relationship with my co-founder. That doesn't mean that we are thrilled with each other all the time. In fact, I think one of the reasons that our relationship is so successful is because he truly is, has become one of my best friends, one of my closest confidants. Because of our relationship, we have to be so brutally honest every day. We probably yell at each other as much as we have nice things to say to each other, but that is not a nice to have. That is a have to have in the relationship we have because we're building something that's become very valuable, very complex, and very much moving at even a faster pace than a marriage. I have kids now that are four years old and seven years old, and that moves pretty fast too. But at the same time, compared to a startup, it's relatively steady state. At a startup, I know what's going to happen probably for the rest of the day, but I don't necessarily know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe we have a big new customer contract. Maybe a customer has an issue. Maybe an employee has an issue. And we have to be on top of all of those things together. But I think it comes down to having the same values. If you're kind of on the same plane, behavior issues, the fighting, the humor, the hard times and the good times, it's not as hard even though it's still hard, but it's not as hard if you can depend on the other person to do what you consider the right thing. At least in my marriage, my wife and I were dating, I think, for like four years before we got married. So there was a foundation of trust. Here, we essentially got married on day one. You just all of a sudden become co-founders. Obviously, we knew each other for six months before that. We were ideating, et cetera. But that level of trust is, I believe, the same as a marriage. I have to trust everything that my co-founder does and vice versa. And we have that bedrock, just like my marriage. And that's a very significant factor, in my opinion, looking back as to why our relationship has worked so well and why the company has worked well. Now, also, just from the business perspective, putting the team together and developing a culture. Do you guys agree on what that is and how is that going? We definitely agree as much as we need to agree. And what I mean by that is that my co-founder is highly technical. What he likes to say is he's been an engineer since his bar mitzvah. I put a lot of deference into his opinions on people's technical acumen. My role is over the business side of the house. We are deferential to people's opinions when it comes to the teams where we have more experience in or over. I think that my background coming from these extremely large law firms is really very much results-based. And I think that that archetype works well for a startup because 
it truly is a sink or swim environment. Either you do it and you're able to raise money and you're able to have a product in the market and you're able to have revenue or you're not. And so I think that we both share that kind of mindset, which is good. When you think back now, even though you have an interesting journey that you've taken to get to this point, which is a little different from some of the other founders that we talked to, but still your obsession, I'm obsessed with how many times you said the word obsession. I mean, I believe you that you love this. So when you think of in your life, what's the best advice you ever got? I would say the best advice that I ever got that's highly pertinent to what I do today is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Because I probably make a hundred, if not a thousand mistakes every week. And I have to because I don't have the luxury that I would have at an Apple or a Google or an IBM where things can move slow. There's a ton of money in the bank. There's a ton of security. I have to make decisions with limited data. And I know that some of those decisions are going to be the quote unquote right decisions. And some of them are going to be the quote unquote wrong decisions. And I have to be okay with that. And I got that advice actually a very, very long time ago, but I don't think I ever put it into practice as much as I do today. The other thing I would say in terms of a character trait that I think has served me the most during this period of life while I have my own company is grit or determination. We have received so many rejections, whether that's from customers or investors or anyone else, naysayers, because our idea from the start was very, very contrary. It took a lot of determination to even come out and start a business that was going so far against the grain, let alone to have the amount of rejection that you have every single day as an entrepreneur. And now the rejection, I don't even take it as a negative. I take it more so as a piece of input, a piece of feedback where I can look within and say, okay, maybe they're on to something. I think that that mindset of don't give up, stay default alive, you have to have that to be an entrepreneur. Using rejection as something that teaches you something. One of the things that we think as we look at quality of founders is that most leaders, most founders, most people who take on this responsibility are students. They're always learning. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do agree with that. But I think that it's an interesting topic when it comes to my company specifically. I'll explain what I mean there. So again, this was a very, very highly contrarian idea at the time. So you're going to have many people, whether they're customers or investors or whomever, who are saying, wait, guys, autonomy is right around the corner. Are you going to be out of business in 2019? And so I think it's important to be curious and listen to all the different opinions. I think that's very, very important. But equally as important is having the conviction to understand what filters you need to put in place. Because if I listen to everyone who had an opinion on what I do day to day or what my company does day to day, I wouldn't be able to run my business. I can't rely on what popular opinion is or what consensus opinion is 
I have to have the conviction to know that I am onto something. I may be seeing something that others are not. I need to stick to this path. So I completely agree being curious is essential, but that filter is essential as well. That was Elliot Katz, co-founder and chief business officer of Phantom Auto. Phantom Auto helps connect people with the jobs that need to be filled, solving driver shortages and expanding access to labor. To learn more, visit phantom.auto. I'm Maureen Taylor. Thanks for listening. Series producer is Mike Sullivan. Sound design by Mark Green. Content and scripting by Jacelyn Drown and Catherine Artie. Production coordinator is Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena Persiani-Shell, John Hughes, and Ren Barrett.